where it is then in that case, Samuel. Thank you. Uh, but if you could turn to chapter 9 of Exodus, you can see if you um, see the enormous handout thing that Mark already referenced, that we're going to try and work our way all the way from chapter 7, verse 8 of Exodus, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 29. I'm just going to read to us the first 12 verses of chapter 9, though. But before I do that, I'm going to pray. Our Father, thank you for this great book of Exodus. Thank you for things we've been learning about you already. Thank you that you revealed yourself in history so that we might know you. And as we think about your greatness this evening, we want to ask that you might open our hearts and our minds to see you as you truly are and that you might help us to see ourselves in relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me read to us from... Uh, verse 1 then of chapter 9 on page 51. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he didn't let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians couldn't stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he didn't let he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Can you flip back then, please, to page 49 as we get going? Uh, more than ever, I'm going to ask you to keep the Bible open in front of you. I'm going to refer to lots of bits all the way through chapters 7 to 10. So I'm uh, hoping you'll just be able to look down and double check um, that I'm saying what the text is saying. There's also the points on the back of the table, which I'll refer to in just a bit. But let's get going. We come this evening to one of the, the great showdowns or confrontations in history. Um, in politics, people talk about the Suez Missile Crisis. In military history, the Siege of Stalingrad, the Battle of Gettysburg. In sport, the Rumble in the Jungle. Or just about any time England plays Scotland at anything. Tonight, we have another. On one side, we have the, the reigning superpower of the day. Here's Egypt uh, with their vast army, enormous wealth, and their dictator who is thuggish and stubborn and feared. And then lining up against all of that might are a couple of brothers, Moses and Aaron, and the God who sent them. 
And as we look at it, there's no doubt who holds the upper hand as we start. Pharaoh's been making the lives of Moses' countrymen miserable for decades. He's been working them tirelessly, oppressing them violently, even drowning their sons in the Nile. But all of that is about to change. At the aim of any showdown is clear, isn't it? We want to reveal who is the strongest, who's the most powerful, who's the champion. And this is no different. In fact, we're told that God deliberately drags things out to reveal his power to everybody. Here's one of the key verses for us. Could you glance down at chapter 9 and verse 15, please? We're in the middle of the seventh plague just to set the scene, and God says to Pharaoh, 9.15, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, I could have killed you already. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that people watch big sports matches or they stay up late to watch election results as they come in is that the outcome is uncertain. It's the drama. We want to know who the winner is. This is different. We've got a showdown, but God has already promised. We saw it last week in Exodus six, that he's going to rescue his people from Egypt. He is going to be their God. They will be his people. But God's purpose is to achieve his plans in a way that reveals to the world what he is like. He wants every one of us to know that he is God, that the one who is powerful is personal, and that the Lord who reigns will rescue his people and no one can stand against him. As I say, it's a massive passage. We're taking it in one go. This particular chunk of these first nine plagues stands apart from what comes before and what comes after, and it's been carefully constructed, as we'll see, to reveal, I think, three big truths about God. They're the points on the sheet, and we'll start with the first, that the Lord will triumph over all. So there aren't nine plagues in total, there are ten. Uh, the first nine come in three sets of three, and then the tenth and the final climactic plague we'll look at next week. But before we get to the plagues themselves, there's this little episode with Aaron's staff that stands on its own in chapter seven. It's not a, a plague. It, can you just make sure you've got that little bit in front of you on page 49, please? Uh, it, it's a snapshot of the drama that is to come. I'll read again from verse 8 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same. By their secret arts, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them, as the Lord had said. Uh, if you've been here, you'll know this isn't the first time Moses and Aaron have come before Pharaoh, and it happened, Pharaoh, it happened back in chapter 5, and it went pretty badly. Um, they delivered a message from God. But Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh had to let God's people go so that they could worship him in the, the wilderness. But instead of agreeing, Pharaoh doubled down on their suffering and oppressed them even more. 
But this opening skirmish in our big showdown between God and Pharaoh is here to show who is going to emerge on top this time. And it's meant as a, a kindness. Pharaoh asks God for a sign to prove that Moses, um, uh, God is as powerful as he claims to be. And in his goodness, the Lord gives him one. Aaron chucks his staff on the ground. And instantly it turns into a serpent, job done. Except Pharaoh doesn't respond, saying, thank you for giving me the sign that I asked for, and in humble worship. Instead, he responds with this, well, anything you can do, we can do as well attitude. And so he summons his magicians and wise men, and somehow they manage to replicate the sign. Uh, some commentators, I should let you know, get very worked up about that. They presume that the text must be saying it's all a trick. Of course, they couldn't actually do this. It's a kind of dynamo or David Blaine type thing where they fooled people into thinking that they could turn their staff into a serpent. I'm not too worried about it. Pharaoh has been presented in Exodus already as being on team devil. Um, it's perfectly possible that his magicians had some sort of real spiritual power. The thing that the text wants us to know is that it's not ultimate power. And that's underlined at the end of verse 12 when Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. It's a symbolic moment for a whole bunch of reasons. One is historical. So uh, in, everyone in Egypt knew that the serpent was a symbol of Egypt's power. Um, pharaohs would wear a headdress. You may have seen a, a picture of one somewhere, and it had a, a, a cobra on it as a symbol of Egyptian might and power. And now Pharaoh's, uh, sorry, Pharaoh's serpent is literally swallowed by Aaron's because we're being told that true power doesn't lie with Pharaoh. There's a theological thing going on as well back in Genesis 3, Satan himself, the prince of evil, was represented as a serpent. But now this team devil serpent is eaten alive to show that ultimate power in the world doesn't lie with evil. Evil will not triumph. There is one Lord, a good Lord, who will triumph over all. And another detail underlines the same thing. There's been a, a few times in Exodus already where specific words have been repeated to draw a link between two different events. Um, Moses's uh, basket was called an ark to remind us of Noah's ark. It happens a couple of times. It happens here with the word swallowed. It, it's here where the serpent is swallowed by, um, where the staff is swallowed by the other staff. The same word is, is used again in chapter 15 when the army of Pharaoh is swallowed up by the Red Sea. Uh, it's not a common word. Anyone reading it through would think, oh, hang on, the, the writer's drawing a link between these two events. What's happening to the serpent belonging to Pharaoh is a preview of what's going to happen to the whole of Pharaoh's army as we go on in a little bit. All of that is to say that, that although we've got a showdown going on here, it, it's not like a, a cup final or something where fans of both teams are biting their nails and a little bit anxious about the outcome. It's more like what happens when you, you can't watch a game live, so you plan to watch it on catch-up. 
and you try and avoid the score all day. I don't know if you've ever done this, but then someone lets it slip and tells you the result. I, Tom's nodding his head. I've done this to him with the Formula One a number of times by mistake. So someone tells you the result, uh, and so the tension is gone, and you still watch the thing on catch-up, but you already know who the winner is going to be. And even if your team go a couple of goals down or something, you, you still know who's going to win. And so you're not remotely stressed. Well, here are Moses and Aaron. And to the naked eye, they're just union reps for a bunch of powerless slaves. And they're talking, they're walking into the presence of the most powerful man on earth and telling him what to do. You wouldn't normally back their chances. But we're being told that there is much more to the world than meets the eye. There is much more to the world than meets the eye. Uh, I looked it up just to try and illustrate the point. The, the human eye is an amazing thing. Some of you learn this stuff for a, a living. The, the human eye has uh, 126 million light-sensitive uh, cells that, is that allow us to distinguish between to our, our eyes between about a million different shades of color, most of us. Can you believe that? A million colors you can discern. Make some of our fashion choices rather surprising when you think that we should uh, be able to know a lot better. On a, on a clear night, the human eye can detect a candle uh, if there's no light pollution that is 48 kilometers away. When you look up into the sky at night, you can see a galaxy that's two and a half million light years away. That's 23 quintillion miles. It blows the mind. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet, there are lots of things that the human eye can't see. You can't see radio waves. You can't see bacteria. That doesn't mean that they're not real. It just means that you can't see them. And we're being reminded that the same is true when we're thinking about ultimate truth and ultimate power in the universe. Everything around us tells us just to trust what we can see. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that's real that we can't see. Look at the world of ancient Egypt or, or even look at our world today. You wouldn't immediately think that the one on the throne of the universe is God. You'd think that power lies in the hands of governments and corporations and pressure groups and the media. Because that's what we see all the time. We're bombarded with it. And their power is real. But it is not ultimate. And just occasionally, God shows, God works in history to show his power so that we might know that there is none like him, and so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And that's what's going on here in Exodus. It's pretty low-key with a serpent eating another serpent, isn't it? It becomes slightly more visible as we carry on through the plagues and with the Exodus itself. It's seen ultimately when Jesus is, rises from the dead and conquers death once and for all. But the message is the same. As you look at the world, don't be fooled by what you can see because the things that are seen, says the New Testament, are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal and ultimate. And the Lord will triumph over all 
But every fight has a loser as well as a winner. And that's our second point this evening. The Lord's enemies will be humbled. The Lord's enemies will be humbled. This is where it's helpful for you to just flick over and make sure you can see the table on the sheet. Um, it runs through the first nine plagues. And I've tried to show how carefully they've been put together. Um, when you look at the setting or the introduction, you'll see that um, plagues one, four, and seven match each other in the way that they're introduced. So do two, five, and eight, and so do three, six, and nine. That's just the start of it. In the first three, Aaron initiates the action, then the Lord for three, and then Moses has a go. And so on. you can check it all through and see how carefully structured and put together they all are. But as well as demonstrating over and over again the sovereign power of the Lord to do whatever he pleases as he reveals himself, the narrative also highlights the inevitable demise of those who oppose him. It's seen just in the fact of the plagues themselves. Again, symbolism is huge. Uh, why turn the waters of the river Nile to blood? Well, partly because the Nile was worshipped as a god in Egypt, as the source of life and fertility. So Egypt, look at your god now, piled high with stinking, rotting fish, and utterly useless. Uh, the Nile was also used by Pharaoh to drown every son born to God's people back in chapter one. So there's a bit of role reversal. You made the Nile a place of death for my people. So now the Nile itself can die. From there, the, the plagues build in intensity as we go through. Some are just inconvenient and unpleasant. A bit like the, the frogs plague, all the sort of slimy, unsanitary, and annoying. Can you imagine the constant rabbit? rabbit? I mean, they're everywhere across the land, and they're just rabbiting away when you're trying to concentrate, when you're trying to sleep at night, and they get everywhere. Pharaohs are normally pretty protected from inconvenience and unpleasantness. Even in his palace, there you'd open the fridge door and rabbit, rabbit out would jump a whole army of frogs. You'd roll over, you'd roll over in bed at night, and hear the bones crunching beneath you as you do it. You'd go to the bathroom, you'd lift the toilet seat, there would be this pair of eyes, rabbit, rabbit, just going away. That's inconvenient. But then you think of the, the gnats and the flies. God says your houses will be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which you stand. I don't want to grace you out even more, but you, you open your mouth to put in a, a mouthful of food and hundreds of gnats go into your mouth instead. You fall asleep with your mouth a little bit open and you wake up in the morning with a mouthful of flies. It gets worse with the livestock in chapter 9. It's the first mention of death so far. Can you imagine the effect on the, the, of the, on the psyche of the country? as the Egyptian livestock just drops dead at the time that God has set. And suddenly farmers are bankrupt and families are going to be hungry. Uh, the account of the boils is the shortest. Lots of writers compare the symptoms to anthrax. Maybe that's what it was. Uh, this time people are hit directly. 
and it's pretty universal, all of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's magicians, presumably Pharaoh himself, are afflicted at the same time. And you think surely by now Pharaoh's going to be learning his lesson. But you see uh, chapter 9, verse 17, God says to him, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So this time God sends on them a storm the like of which Egypt had never seen. Just go on to verse 23 of chapter 9. We're over on page 52. Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never had been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the land. I'm told that hailstones can reach up to one kilogram in weight, and they fall at about 50 meters a second. So we're not surprised at the devastation of plant and animal and even human life across the land. But we're, we're starting to think, how foolish can people be? Because God told them it would happen. And he gave them the opportunity to bring their families and their animals safely inside. And some of the Egyptians listened. But others said, well, I don't really believe in Moses' God. I'm not afraid of his hailstones. And so they hardened their hearts to God's gracious word of warning, and they paid the price. What the hail leaves, the locusts eat. There's so many, we're told, you couldn't see the land anymore. And they devoured everything. Chapter 10, verse 15, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all of Egypt. Finally comes the darkness. Um, Egyptians worshipped the sun. So you can imagine how they felt when the Lord pulled the plug on the sun for a time and left the land in complete darkness. So all through the plagues, the lesson is clear. We're being told that the Lord's enemies, people who, who line up against him, people who resist him, will be humbled. It's a point that's underlined by the role of the magicians. Early on, they can replicate everything that's happening. Moses turns the, the and Aaron turn the Nile into blood. They do the same. Uh, Moses produces these frogs out of nowhere. They do the same. Although we're wondering how it helps that they produce even more frogs uh, at the time that they're rebutting all over the place. By the time we get to the gnats, verse 18 of chapter 8, if you just flick that black there, verse 18 of chapter 8, they've met their limit. They tried, we read, by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. The magician said, this is the finger of God. And so by chapter 10, the magicians are pleading with Pharaoh. They say, let the men go in chapter 10 that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand, Pharaoh, that Egypt is ruined? 
Because whether we're talking about the magicians or the Egyptians, gods or Pharaoh, we're being told they're all just impotent wannabes. The killer blow won't fall until chapter 12 or chapter 14. But the truth is already out. They might look big and strong to the naked eye. But the Lord's enemies will be humbled. And there's no doubt in the text that Pharaoh deserves his fate. Um, Not just for the way that he's been so gleefully oppressing God's people for decades but for the way he continues to harden his heart to God. Um, You'll see on the the table, sometimes the text says his heart was hardened and we're not told by whom. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then three times it says the Lord did the hardening. And you put it together, we're being told that, that God is sovereign even over Pharaoh. Proverbs says that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he wills. And in part, at least, God is using Pharaoh's arrogance as the canvas upon which to display his own power. But at the same time, Pharaoh is making a deliberate choice. He insists on exalting himself against God. We know that as readers. He's just refusing to do what God has told him. And Pharaoh knows it too. Glance at chapter 10 and verse 16. See what he says? I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. He knows what he's been doing. Now therefore forgive my sin. Except he changes his mind again. So the question that God asks in verse 3 of chapter 10, verse 3 of chapter 10 is key not only for Pharaoh himself but also for us as readers. God asks, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This is who I am. This is all of my power. This is what will happen to my enemies. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How do you think you should respond? to the Lord whose triumph is guaranteed. I'd suggest not by fighting against him, not by exalting yourself in your pride against him, but by humbling ourselves and asking to join his team. It's not just a lesson for those who don't believe Um, If you go on to verse 1 of chapter 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, so that you, my people, may know that I am the Lord. So God wants his own people to know for generations to come that he is the Lord and that picking a fight against him is a terrible idea. Uh, Throughout their history, even after God saves them, his people were surprised but 
works that we see ourselves in them, that they'll still be tempted all the way through the Old Testament to grumble against God and to ignore his word and to harden their hearts against him. They behave like Pharaoh quite a lot of the time through their history. And every Christian will know the temptation to do the same. I know that I do. But these plagues were a, a permanent cultural marker, a moment in history, a warning to us all that opposing God does not work. His enemies will all be humbled. And it's only in him that we can be eternally secure. That's our third and briefest point. The Lord's people will be safe. There's a lovely theme that runs through the narrative. I'm sorry we're having to do it at such a high altitude, kind of scanning across the whole thing. I hope you'll want to go back and read through it over the next um, day or two. But there's a lovely theme that grows through the narrative. It starts in the flies, um, which when you call it the flies, it sounds like an Alfred Hitchcock novel, doesn't it? it swarms of flies descend on Egypt. But go on to uh, verse 22 of chapter 8. Verse 22 of chapter 8, the Lord says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. And that's what happens. And then it happens again, uh, chapter 9, verse 4 this time. This is in the livestock plague. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Pharaoh doesn't believe that God has that power. So in verse 7, he sends a crack team of scientists with clipboards to investigate. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. It's there again in verse 26 of the same chapter. There's hailstones everywhere. But only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Finally, chapter 10, verse 23, the Egyptians didn't see one another. Um, darkness, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So you're seeing a clear distinction. Here's a king and a nation who have continued to exalt themselves against God uh, and his people who've refused to humble themselves and there is terrible devastation. But God's people are completely safe and not a hair on their head is touched. And that is because our Lord, this God of sovereign power, uses his power to save his people. Just as he did when the Lord Jesus died on the cross. So that we could be set free from the power of sin and evil and death. Because that is what the Lord is like. He uses his sovereign power to save anyone, even Egyptians, who trust in him. And that's been God's purpose throughout this showdown that isn't really a contest at all. He wants us all to know that there is none like him in all the earth and that his people are safe forever before him.
sins are forgiven, relationship with him restored, and eternal life guaranteed in his son, Jesus. The God of sovereign power, who will humble his enemies, keeps his people safe. Final, final thing to say. One more note. And it's what the Lord wants his saved people to do. Flip with me one more time as we go through the, the pages. Might you back in uh, verse 16 of chapter 7, back on page 49, Moses is to say to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Chapter 8, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may serve me. The word is worship. You'll see the same thing if you glance on to verse 20 of chapter 8. That they may serve me. Chapter 9, verse 1. That they may serve me. Verse 13. That they may serve me. Chapter 10, verse 3, that they may serve me. It's on the lips of the magicians in 10, verse 7. Let them go so that they may serve the Lord their God. And then climactically for now in verse 25 of chapter 10, Pharaoh's been by this point trying to negotiate a partial release of God's people. He says, you can go, but make sure you come back afterwards. Or you can go, but only the men can go, leave everyone else behind. Or you can go, but you have to leave your animals behind. And then we get to 10 verse 25. Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The lesson for us, if, if anyone ever thought that salvation is an end in itself, or that God sent Jesus to die just so that you could go to, to heaven one day, or even just so that you could know God, then that gospel is truncated and incomplete. Because God uses his sovereign power to save his people so that we might serve him. And that's God's purpose for you if you know him, if you know that he saved you, is that we would offer our souls and our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. And whatever we do, whatever you're doing at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, on Wednesday at three in the afternoon, next Saturday night, whatever we do, we're doing it all to the glory of God. Working heartily, not for people, but for the Lord. For it is the Lord Christ we're serving 24 hours of every day. What that's going to look like will vary for each of us. But if you know the Lord Jesus, the Lord our God has revealed himself in history and used his power to set us free from sin and from evil and from death so that we might serve him 
with all of our heart and all of our life. I want to encourage you to have stick around at the end for an imaginary cup of coffee uh, or tea. In fact, you can have any imaginary drink you like uh, at the end. Uh, and use some time to think about what will it look like? What's it, what does it look like for you if you have been set free by the Lord of sovereign power to use your whole life in service of him? But for now, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we've covered a, a lot of ground, and yet the lessons are simple, that you are the God who triumphs, that your enemies are humbled, and that your people are saved so that we might serve you. And we want to pray that as we look back over these chapters, you might uh, write these lessons deep in our hearts, and you might help us to look at our world uh, as the kind of world that it really is, the world in which you reign, you will triumph. That all of the power brokers of our day that we're so easily impressed by may have real power, but it's not ultimate, for you are in charge. And your enemies will be humbled, as the Lord Jesus himself taught so often. But all those who humble themselves before you are saved and will be exalted. Write these things on our hearts and help us to live in the light of them, to offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.